Welcome once again into the Radiopedia Reading Room, a podcast unconcerned with books or poetry, tassiography or palmistry. <laughs> this is a radiology podcast. My name is Andrew Dixon and joining me once again in the radiology oasis, haptic suit on and searching for Easter eggs, it's my co-host, Frank Gaylard. How you doing, Ooh, mate? Ooh, I like that. Ready Player One reference. Yeah. That's a rare example of uh, a movie that, I mean, it's worse than the book, but it's not horribly worse than the book. And when I say that I read the book, I actually mean listen to the book because I haven't, I mean, I read occasionally, but I probably, I don't know, the ratio is probably 20 to one, maybe. Maybe when you're on a holiday by a pool, you'll use a paper book, but- Maybe, Other than that. maybe. But having yeah. Will Wheaton read things to you, you know, you come to the realisation that these professional narrators are way better narrators than you are, which shouldn't really come as a surprise because <laughs> that's their job. But Will Wheaton's amazing. I really enjoyed listening to that audiobook and I really did not enjoy the movie, I must say. Yeah. Well, Will Wheaton reads a whole heap, including a whole series of John Scalzi novels. Not Matt Scalzi from Radiopedia, but John <laughs> Scalzi, the sci-fi author, which are so much fun to read. I think he read The uh, the Martian as well, didn't he? Yeah, probably did, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. For today's episode, uh, we're going to listen back to a panel discussion that you recorded with James Hayes and Dimitri Amaras ah. about a year ago for Radiopedia 2022. Frank, you remember that? Vaguely. So, James trained as a radiographer and Dimitri is a radiologist, but both have their own little companies exploring the use of augmented and virtual reality in radiology. So James mainly focusing on radiographer education and allowing radiographers to simulate in virtual space the mechanics of acquiring radiographs Mm -hmm. and Dimitri exploring the use of extended reality to allow radiology trainees to actually perform simulated CT procedures prior to doing it in, you know, meat space on actual patients. So, yeah, that's the background for for this episode and why I went for a Ready Player One augmented and virtual reality theme in the intro. Well, I'm keen to re-listen to this, actually, particularly in light of the, you know, Apple Vision Pro announcement. But Mm. before we do that, you mentioned meat space. It's a very exciting meat-related update. Uh, You see, I threw that one to you. I thought, if I say meat, (laughs) I'm definitely going to... It's like dangling a little bit of bait in front of you, mate. It is. But we've got uh, the US Department of Agriculture, which Mm -hmm. I don't know what they've got to do with vat-grown meat. But anyway, it's the Department of Agriculture granted its ever-first approval of cell-cultured meat produced in the US to be sold in some selected restaurants. The two companies are, let me see, are Good Meat yep. and Upside Food. And both <laughs> of them are growing vat-grown chicken muscle cells that they'll sell in San Francisco. Oh, so yeah. Sounds the, like a good place to start. The change is coming, Dixon, any second. Yep. <laughs> is that anything, anything else to that news other than there's been approved? No, I mean, that's a big thing, right? Okay. Like you, you've yeah. got animal tissue being grown in a Petri dish and that legislative powers are happy for people to eat it. Yeah, I would have thought maybe the Food and Drug Administration would have some say on it as well. No, agriculture, it's chickens. (laughs) (laughs) All right, well, let's uh, let's get into this week's podcast, Gaylord. So this was recorded live with you and James Hayes and Dimitri Amaras at Radiopedia 2022, a fascinating little chat with Gaylord taking a typically Gaylord-esque considered and 
somewhat skeptical approach. So let's listen to that now, and then we'll be back in the reading room oasis at the end for another chat. I'm now joined by James and Dimitri. Hi, Frank. How you doing? Thanks for those lectures. I found those really interesting. And as a bit of a geek, anything that involves a new gadget, I'm naturally drawn to. But at the same time, I can't help but remember that when I was a kid, we had the first VR interest that promised a great deal. And it seemed to be a, a solution looking for problems. And it turned out that no one actually had some really good problems that needed VR back in the 90s. And it all died away. And, and then we've had a resurgence now. And clearly the technology has matured a great deal. But I had the same experience. I immediately bought myself the PlayStation VR headset and got really excited and played a few games and then rapidly thought, you know what, I prefer doing this on a screen with a controller. It's more efficient. And so both of you mentioned in your talks that you have desktop versions of it or just screen-based versions. And my question to both of you, and starting with you, James, is how much of this do you think is VR or XR dependent? And how much of it is actually people who are passionate about teaching, finding better modern ways of teaching that happens to be able to use these technologies, but that's not at the heart of what we're doing. Mm. So, I mean, you make a great point. For a start, there's an expression I use that I say, well, there's a huge difference between gaming and training. And there are the virtual reality gaming world is a little underwhelming. Um, the realism is there. The, you know, you're, you're immersed in something. I once played a game for five minutes where I was being chased by zombies. Shortly after that, I made sure that all of the doors in the house were locked and uh, I was terrified. So it is very, very real. Now, if you can take that and you transfer all of that immersiveness on all of that fidelity and realism and you make yourself a hospital, or a radiology department or anything in that area or a clinic, you're like, well, now we've got access to something that's immersive. What is available on the screen is just completely different to what is available in VR. There is the something called room scale. Um, so you've got the muscle memory. So you're moving a patient or you're moving a scalpel or uh, a radiology machine by moving it you know, with your hands rather than clicking on a mouse. And Dimitri, what was your experience between the virtual reality biopsy solution versus the on-screen version? Yeah, so um, we started off with a uh, HoloLens, which is a sort of head-mounted uh, AR display. And um, the students, the, what was really interesting is that when the students started using it, they were kind of, first of all, blown away by the experience. So if, if you've not used the uh, HoloLens before, it, basically it's like you're hallucinating and seeing something in front of you that feels like it's there so that really grabs the students like imagination and they get really into the to the process um and we got amazing feedback from that session and and similar to to what you're saying james we kind of had to sort of try and pivot to account for how things have changed during the pandemic and so that's where we kind of developed this desktop version of the same thing from scratch and it was interesting because when we ran the sessions with this desktop version there was the same kind of feedback 
uh, we got about feeling comfortable with the procedure, feeling like they learned something from it. So I'm, I'm not sure. I think in my particular example, because we're doing CT biopsies, a lot of the inference is on 2D anyway. The CT scan is a, you know, a mm-hmm. 2D representation. And because they're actually using a phantom, they were getting that tactile feedback. I think in the event, their imagination kind of worked anyway. It'll be, it'll be good for us. We're going to hopefully do a comparison and see what, uh, how, how it compares. But I think there's a real, you know, the desktop versions have got real potential. And, um, you know, as you say, the technology is still, you're still using very similar technology and it is replicating a lot of the same stuff. Um, but I, I do, there is, there is that advantage. I know you're talking about your VR headsets, but that kind of immediate, this is actually really cool. It's exciting. It does get those, the students more focused on what they're doing, I think. But we'll see, um, you know, see what I'll, we'll do some comparisons and see what the feedback's like. So that's an interesting point you bring up about engagement of students, because whenever there's a new technology that comes out, the early adopters almost by definition are going to be people that are really interested and passionate about teaching and embrace these new technologies. And so you're going to get the best people creating these kind of early learning experiences. The students then are going to find them amazing and engaging, and then they get widely adopted. And the people who don't like to teach or who have been using the same slides from 1982, you know, blue with yellow Times New Roman heads headings, they're going to use these technologies just as badly as they use PowerPoints potentially. How much do you think of the engagement relates to the immersiveness versus the fact that the people making the content are particularly, you know, it's new content and it's different? Okay. So, I mean, you're right. There, there are always going to be problematic lecturers um, in that they will not, you know, they will not keep up their material. And in some ways, they're always going to hide in plain sight. What this does is it allows a lot of the students who are in those classes and there's nothing they can do for the three, four, five, six years, um, the virtual reality and the, um, the adaptive learning that gets wrapped around it, it really allows a lot of self-directed learning, which <laughs> you know, kind of gets around a problem that you might not have an enthusiastic lecturer. This at least gives the students the opportunity to really go out and push the boundaries because like you know like Dimitri was saying earlier they can do it in their own time um I was talking about doing it off-site or I think it was actually the other way around you know it, it gives the students that capability that and most students let's face it are there because they want to learn. Dimitri when you were showing the glued on QR co-registration dot onto the biopsy and just a yeah. screen it made me think you know, this is something that can actually be deployed uh, in places that don't have a research department or don't have the funds for a commercial enterprise. Because one of the worries, I think, with these new and amazing technologies is in some ways they can widen the gap between places that have the resources and those that don't. And so finding ways that you can adapt this to the least funded regions possible uh, is really important. But it does mean that it has to be created in a way that can be implemented. So um, I'm glad you mentioned that because that was kind of part of the pivot to 
doing it on a desktop and a webcam is to see how widely implemented we could make it and how sort of um, low cost um, and low barriers to, to adoption. Um, I think, you know, you've got a webcam, you've got a computer, um, you've got some biopsy needles, otherwise there's no point learning how to do biopsy. And then you've got a printer. Um, you know, the software we are planning to put the uh, executable files on GitHub so they're ready available. Um, and, you know, I don't, I don't think there's going to be too much, too many barriers from that. For most people um, who are working in a hospital, they should, most people have got access to all of that. Uh, the next point um, is that we've tried to make it so you get a bit more tactile feedback. So you may need to get a 3D printer to print out the phantom to do the biopsies from. Uh, that, you know, that's another thing that places may not have. Or maybe we can have stuff where we get other people to print them and mail them out. It's, you know, um, I, I'm hoping that it'll have great adoption. So, you know, watch the space. We'll let you know. For all of us who work in academic or teaching centres and have been there for you know, more than 10 years, you will see the natural accretion of administrative hurdles that various training institutions or accrediting bodies um, use to keep track of how students are training. And it would be nice to find ways of assessing competency in a way that wasn't bureaucratic, but was objective, measurable and validated. And, and it feels like both the VR and the CT example that you had, Dimitri, could lend themselves to something like that, where to show proficiency at doing CT biopsies, you actually need to hit you know, these lesions under sort of test conditions, which you couldn't possibly do in the real world. Or similarly for radiographers, you have to take this set of x-rays in VR appropriately. Have these kind of examinations been validated in how they transfer the skills to the real world? Yes, they have. And we can't touch that, obviously, as a commercial company. We maintain an arm's length. There are a number of papers published about both our software and other people's software. Now, we obviously can't, um, we have to maintain sort of an arm's length, if you like, from that. Um, there's some quite early results out from a number of universities, which shows that the students felt like they were getting better transfer of knowledge, which is a great thing, because if they're feeling it, that's, that's usually. But also that the um, clinicians they work with in the hospital, that the students that they were getting after some terms using virtual reality simulation compared to those who hadn't been using it were better prepared. And that's really exciting. And Dimitri, what's been your experience with the students having done a bunch of virtual biopsies when they actually do their first real biopsy? So certainly the kind of uh, structured feedback that we did on the course showed they were much more confident afterwards. Um, and they felt like, oh my God, I'm getting to do stuff that I would, you know, feel really scared about doing in, in practice. Um, but uh, yeah, we haven't got sort of firm data on like, what the experience is for the trainers in in the clinical stuff. I think that's a, you know, a really exciting, interesting point to look at. Um, and just to pick up this, think about this thing about assessment, there's lots of amazing, clever stuff you can do. You can do hand tracking, you can look at efficiency of movement, all that kind of stuff. And and then what it what it allows you to do is then have differentiated differentiated training for your trainees. So if someone isn't so, especially with a practical stuff, isn't so practically minded, you like, you know what? 
spend a few more days on the simulator and then we'll then we'll bring you in to do the, the biopsies and you get better experience for the patient better experience for the trainee they don't have any stress about it and as the trainers you have an easier life as well now something that um i wondered about during your talk dimitri you had the augmented or extended reality of the perforator veins superimposed on the leg uh, and you also had this ct biopsy virtual system it, it strikes me that one of the simplest and most useful applications of that would be superimposing your skin entry point and the angle at which you want your needle to enter on the patient when they're lying there in the CT gantry. Is that something that you think is fairly easily uh, developed? Is it something that any of the vendors currently offer? So, so they don't offer it at the, at the moment. Um, and I don't know if you saw there, I did show a few uh, pictures from a paper from a team that actually uh, did a, some simulations of, of biopsies and demonstrated the lesion. And then you literally just saw the lesion in, in the holographic yeah. world and, and pushed the needle in. In fact, on our biopsy app, we did have a virtual needle that was there. and was like, this is the angle you need to take for like the first time users. So, you know, it, it, it makes perfect sense to do something like that. Um, and I'm not sure why the vendors haven't done that. I think they're trying to work on how many more slices they can put on their CT scanner at the moment. Yes. <laughs> and how they can use AI uh, to sell something. But yeah, you know, it makes total sense. And actually, if you think about patient benefit, um, it, it wouldn't be hard to write paper to show that you've got less complications um, once you have these devices in, in place. Well, thank you both uh, for joining me here and thank you for your lectures. We're now going to take a... Oh, thank you to Dimitri and James and to you, Frank, for that panel discussion there. Uh, I guess like a month or two ago, wasn't it, that Apple announced the, the Vision Pro, which looks like it contains some pretty amazing tech that wasn't available when this panel discussion was recorded. Do you think this will change anything in the, the VR, AR space, or is it still a solution looking for a problem, as you said? <laughs> I don't know. I um. I'm so ambivalent about this. On the one hand, I love any piece of gadgetry and tech. And I know that I've got a real bias towards thinking that the new thing is awesome. But at the same time, I'm just not sure how how relevant a lot of this stuff is for most of what we do. Mm -hmm. I mean, a lot of what we do is is on screens and mimicking 2D screens in virtual reality seems just bit silly. I guess there are some niche applications like the moving around a space or moving a person, like a pretend virtual person into specific positions, which is much harder to mimic in mm -hmm. a 2D environment. I don't know. Like when I was a registrar, we practiced doing ultrasound biopsies on a chicken breast with olives embedded in it. Did you ever do things like that? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Was it lab-grown chicken? No, this was... Oh. Torture chicken. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, that's a, there's a huge benefit to doing that because the last thing you want to do is the very first time you're learning how to fire the spring-loaded core biopsy needle to be mm -hmm. when you're four centimetres in some petrified patient's breast. So I think that's a huge benefit to it. 
And so there are going to be examples like that where VR can bridge that very early phase of training. Mm-hmm. I watched, um, I don't know what YouTube channel was talking about the use of simulators in F1 training mm-hmm. and Verstappen, Verstappen, yes, he he's he loves the simulator. He spends an inordinate amount of time in the mm-hmm. simulator and is one of the great simulator drivers out there. And Hamilton hates them and basically doesn't use them at all. Now, the last couple of years, maybe he should use them more. But <laughs> the, the thing that he was saying was that when you're driving a real car, a lot of the information you're getting is non-visual. Mm-hmm. It's the feel of the car under you and how it slides around and you know the vibrations and the feeling and the inertia change. Whereas practicing on the simulator teaches you to overemphasize your visual input. Yeah. And so in his belief, it actually is counterproductive because when you then get into a race car, you've trained yourself to ignore all of these other cues. I can imagine that just from owning two different cars and going from one to the other, it actually takes you a conscious effort to adapt your driving from one to the other. So I can imagine if the simulation isn't absolutely perfect, then you would have that situation where you know your muscle memory that you've developed for the simulator doesn't cross over perfectly to the real world. Yeah, so it might be really good early on, but then loses relevance later. And in fairness, mm. they're the applications that uh, were being shown. Right, these weren't um, simulations that an experienced radiographer or an experienced CT biopsier mm. would be doing. This was really for students to get them to know what all the levers and buttons in the process was. But mm. the Apple Pro is going to be really interesting because of that. It's sort of augmented reality, or they don't use that term, but you know, it's got cameras all the way around. So you can imagine that you could potentially train radiographers in a virtual in the room in your hospital mm-hmm. with virtual patients perhaps i don't know if anyone could get it to work it's going to be apple right? absolutely yeah yeah i'm not even you said you're not sure that projecting a 2d screen into the virtual space is going to be that useful i, I think it actually will be from what i've heard the the clarity of mm. the apple vision pro is such that it feels like you're looking at a screen the text looks amazing And, you know, a lot of spaces where you're working, your screen is kind of limited in how big it can be. that's true. And the the ergonomics, you can position the screen wherever you like, you know, sit in a nice kind of comfortable place. And also you can can potentially get rid of screens entirely. So the cost of the actual screens themselves. We could become true battery radiologists, like battery chickens. You just need a cubicle (laughs) just big enough for a radiologist. You put a drip in our arm, caffeine. Up to 5 p.m., then you swap it over for a Negroni. <laughs> you just report. I Look, I think that is potential. I think it could be. And if, if there's one thing that I think will, you know, break through and make the, the VR AR headset a reality in terms of day-to-day life, it's, it's work because work is you looking at a screen usually on your own for an extended yeah. period of time and you don't have the social problems because you're usually just working independently right whereas any other application of this wearing these goggles is going to be a barrier to actual you know interactions with other humans so i think if they can nail the working at simulated screens then i reckon i reckon it could be big and it's also true that our environments aren't great 
often. Like yeah. the room that we report in, it's not exactly a, a, a wonderful place to be in. And if you can have a, a virtual place on the side of the beach or some meadow somewhere <laughs> with your beautiful desk, mahogany desk and enormous monitors all around you, maybe that would be better. Yeah, and more customised to you rather than yeah, you know having to true. adapt to everybody else in the room. Nah, I wonder. What about gaming though? You've done a bit of game, gaming in VR. I know we we went to um, that, I think it's called Zero Latency here yeah. in Melbourne, which is like a warehouse where they've got cameras and you wear a VR headset and you can walk around the room and there's that one bit where you kind of come up an elevator. Obviously, you don't, but you feel like you've come up an elevator. The, the doors of the elevator open and then there's like a, a little path across a big oh know, that's crevasse. amazing right <laughs> yeah and they and they blow a fan on you so you really feel like you're actually going across and that you could fall down that feels good and then obviously you're killing zombies because what else would you want to do in that awesome. kind of yeah. setting um so that was good but have you ever done like vr at home i've never really got into gaming at yeah home. when the first playstation vr came out i immediately got it and um played with it for a while and you know that fake screen in vr kind of works for gaming. I remember playing some 2D games on a massive like a virtual theater screen instead of my normal TV. And that was interesting. The resolution at the time wasn't great. But the one thing that I realized was I'm just petrified of horror type games. I tried to play Resident Evil 4 (laughs) that's set in some redneck mansion with you know, it's kind of like Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing. <laughs> and the difference between using a controller to move the camera with your left thumb to look behind you versus having to actually turn your head to look around yeah. you or to crouch to look under a trapdoor or something, that physicality of it was was petrifying and I got about 10% through the game and it's like there, there is nothing about this that is fun. My adrenal glands are sort of <laughs> squeezing themselves dry as I'm playing this. So I um, got rid of it pretty soon. But I don't know. Uh, again, often just a controller, after the first few minutes of playing a game, you actually forget whether you're looking at a screen or not. Most people I've heard of who've got into VR gaming only do it for a short period of time and then they go back to, to more traditional handheld controller type yeah. gaming. So... I'm not sure. That's why I wonder whether the actual, you know, work environment creating simulated screens is going to be the thing that breaks it through rather than than gaming. I was speaking to a friend of mine who mentors startups at one of the technical universities here in Melbourne. They have these days where people come and pitch ideas for new companies. Mm-hmm. And he was saying, oh, my God, you know, there's, again, for the fifth year in a row, someone comes up with the idea of cutting up used car tires and incorporating them in something, whether it's sleepers for railway stations or whether it's in tarmac for car for roads, et cetera, mm-hmm. and showing that, you know, you can reuse these and they're environmentally friendly and they increase the longevity of the road or whatever item they put it in. And his comment was, That's not the hard part. The coming up with the idea is actually the really easy part. It's making it into a product or a company that actually works. That's the really challenging part. And and that echoes what Elon Musk said about when, when he was ramping up the Tesla factories. He's like, building 
the car is a thousand times easier than building the factory that builds mm. the cars yeah, yeah, yeah. and integrating that into a company that is actually financially viable. And so putting on these headsets and showing a demo that is compelling is only the first 10% of the problem. It's can you build a business around making it really good? Can you sell enough of these headsets to get buy-in? And if Apple's having a swing at it, I, I guess that means they think they can. But you wonder whether a lot of the technology that they've come up for this will apply to other things anyway, even if this even if this doesn't land. Because the idea of of 3D video is obviously going to happen yeah. in the future anyway. I wonder whether we'll get to the point where you actually have cameras in every room of your house that kind of video you throughout the day and can every room look Dixon. At you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for my, for my only fans. <laughs> No, I just wonder whether that would be a thing because, you know, you the problem with the headset at the moment is that you put the headset on but you can't actually have a camera facing back at yourself necessarily. How, how um, nice would it be if we could get rid of consent forms and if you recorded the conversation you had with the patient, hmm. then you wouldn't need to do all the paperwork because the actual conversation... Yeah, it's been documented. ...would be the thing rather than a piece of paper that stands in for a conversation that may or may not have occurred no, i think i prefer the piece of paper to be honest <laughs> then you can just go yeah here you go here's the piece of paper <laughs> take your time to read it but sign it right now yeah sign it right now i'll just start scrubbing up while you're reading yeah. that <laughs> i remember quite a few years ago when one of my trainees was in like first year he's now he's now a fellow he's really into kind of tech and and these kind of things and he got an ultrasound probe and got his just his smartphone I think and put it in as a little pair of goggles and then put a little marker on the end of the the cannula and then he wrote a little program to when you put your goggles on the cannula was essentially like like a lightsaber you would get <laughs> and you could just see when it came into plane on the ultrasound right so you know you could see that your laser wasn't there and then you could see oh, there's the laser going right into the the blood vessel and then you just keep going along that trajectory and you know you get a hit and if the laser moves away you know you're not quite on yep. track this was very very accurate and you were doing it just on a on a dummy but it was amazing and he did that he just hacked that together yeah. so i'm surprised that these things aren't happening from some of the big manufacturers to be honest it's because it's a thousand times harder and it is disappointing right because i spent time doing um computer aided diagnosis i had a, a small lab where we did MS lesion detection and we published a whole bunch of validation studies showing that it really helped and we still use it at our hospital as part of an ongoing research thing. And it sped everyone up and you feel much more confident that you're identifying new lesions using it. But getting a vendor to kind of develop it and go through the process mm. of FDA approval, et cetera, is such a huge undertaking that a lot of this low-hanging fruit just isn't getting done. Instead, we're spending all our time answering questions that don't need to be answered most of the time. You know, a lot of the AI research is on like detecting pseudoprogression versus true tumor progression, and they show that it's 90% effective or whatever. And it's like, well, you can be 90% effective even as a mediocre radiologist. That's not a really difficult problem. It's identifying the small aneurysm on a non-dedicated study that's would be having much bigger effect on patient outcomes, but you don't see those 
and coming out as quickly as I would have thought they would have come out. So there's there's incentives there that distort. Just whether something is good doesn't mean it's going to happen, unfortunately. And that's where I'm a bit pessimistic about VR in training in radiology. We should have got someone on the podcast who was not pessimistic about it to go <laughs> to have a conversation with you. But unfortunately, I agree too much with you this week. So we've kind of just, you know, kind of just gone into a very negative space, but we better wrap it up. So how, you know, in a very negative way, how can people get in contact with us, Frank? Well, if you absolutely must get in contact with us, you can Please do don't. so at Radiopedia <laughs> on Twitter and at Instagram, as well as at Frank Gaylard and Andrew Dixon. Oh, sorry, it's Dr. Andrew Dixon, isn't it? Uh, but just, just whatever. But don't do, do it. Do whatever. We're not going to answer. So, yeah. And you can email us at podcast at radiopedia.org with ideas and feedback or just, you know, negative feedback, just downers, just things that you don't yeah. like. But I tell you what's exciting. Radiopedia 2023 is coming up in two weeks' time. Here we go. Now we're getting excited. Well, that is a thousand times harder, but we're actually doing it and it'll be awesome. Yeah. It's actually happening. So that's one way you can support us actually is by becoming a supporter and an all-access pass holder on the website and you get to attend the, the conference with that. Um, and in doing so, you're also helping us to give free access to the conference and to all our courses to people in 125 low and middle-income countries. So that's exciting. And what, what, what else can people do to help us out, Frank? Well, you can also leave a one-star review. No. <laughs> <laughs> a five-star review in the podcast app of your choosing. Yes, excellent. All right, should we? Oh, I want to hear you stay rad today. This will be great. This will uh, be. Really? I, I want the most depressing Frank <laughs> Gaylard. AI is terrible. Augmented reality is crap. That's I want, what I want. I want diminished reality where you can, <laughs> you know, remove things from around you, not add things. In. Yeah, yeah. Just go into a complete two-dimensional space. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> and we'll catch you all again sometime soon in the reading room. Stay rad. Stay yeah. rad. If you have to, you can stay rad. You don't have to, though. Should we do this again next week or not, mate? No. Don't know. I suppose we better. I'm going to have a drink. <laughs> See ya. <laughs> Bye. <laughs>